Hey everyone, it's Meg here. If you stick around after the outro music, you'll get to hear a preview of Forks and Stallion. It follows the adventures of Sherlock Holmes's less successful across the street neighbours, who find themselves handed the case of their lives while Holmes and Watson are out of town. If you like our brand of historical in-jokes and offbeat comedy, then you're really going to love Fox and Stallion. It's basically a really gay carry-on film, and I definitely mean that as a compliment. Now that that's out of the way, enjoy today's episode. Before the Feverite Revolution, it was a long-held tradition in the Kingdom of Valor that each monarch would be accompanied by a Grand Mage, a position that encompassed all magic-related responsibilities within the King's domain, as well as any jobs particularly suited to the Mage's area of expertise. As Ariadne was a fleshcrafter, her job as Grand Mage required her to serve as both the Royal Healer and the Court Torturer. The position of court torturer was obviously abolished under the socialist rule of the Feverites, but it was reinstated in 1964 after a national referendum. The role is now mostly ceremonial, with the holder of the title's responsibilities relegated almost entirely to appearances at parades and store openings. Pierre Salamanca, the current holder of the position, was so elevated due to his successful chain of organic patisseries, Pierre's Pies, Pierre has only once been called upon to torture someone to death due to a long-forgotten statute regarding road construction which was never officially repealed. He is on record as saying the experience was, quote, not what he expected. In Ariadne's time, though, the role of court torturer was a hallowed position, one that she took up with great respect and enthusiasm. Even after losing her job following the destruction of the monarchy, she still took whatever opportunities she could to keep her skills sharp. This was how she had been choosing to spend her time since her last run-in with Aya, Winterlich, and Geis. I, I, I'm sorry for, for pretending to be my secretary. If you want your fingers to be able to point again, then tell me where Colette is. Ariadne had tracked Colette to the town of Beaupont, where the office of Dr. Giroux, as the foremost medical authority of the area, had naturally been her first stop. Ariadne had asked to be introduced to the doctor, and as soon as he had confirmed his identity, started extracting information from him. And also, bones. My, my, my. This will make quite the back-scratcher, won't it? P please I'll, I'll tell you everything I know. The girl... She came in to have her head treated. She couldn't pay. My brother and I tried to be nice and offered her an alternate payment plan, but she was ungrateful and stole from us. Then she went off with her idiot friend. In the van, yes, I know. But where? I don't remember. Are you sure? Let's pretend your wrist is a compass for a moment. Maybe I can jog your memory that way. Perhaps they went north, or south, maybe? Am I getting closer, Dr. Giraud? It might have been east? No, no, west. That's all I know, I promise. Ugh, useless. And so, with a click of her fingers, Ariadne separated the good doctor from his skeleton. 
The bones hovered in the air for a moment before forming themselves into a macabre but surprisingly comfortable chair. Ariadne sat down heavily in it, kneading her temples with her fingertips. Another dead end. I swear, people just don't have the common courtesy to keep tabs on your enemies these days. I'm getting so tired of this. Leo! Leonid poked his head into the doctor's office. He had been lounging in the waiting room, blocking his ears while paging through an old copy of Spats and Hats Periodical, a publication that recently celebrated its centennial. Oh, thank God, you're finally done in here! Yes, Leo, people tend to stop talking once you've taken out their entire skeletal system. Did you find out where Colette went then? The doctor was about as helpful as his prescription for baths that electrocute you. So... Now that you've killed our last lead, can we finally go home? Beaupont is so ugly! Don't you start. Get your coat, dear. We're going back to Champignon. Champignon, which you may remember as the adopted home of Colette Geis, boasted a surprisingly fine spring market, one that drew merchants from all over Valor. True, one or two of them would die at the claws of a mantelope on the way there, or simply become forever lost in the depths of the Seltzamwald, but this was, as ever, the price of commerce. At this particular spring market, Ninette Benoit, Colette's landlady and only friend for the past ten years, was making conversation with the fishmonger. Your son hated fish so much that he decided to go and join the army. Well, as long as he's happy, that's the thing, isn't it? Not like me and my Stefan. May the bastard burn. Ninette placed the wrapped fish in her basket and made her way around the market, checking in with friends and absorbing the latest gossip. Oh, did he? <gasps> she didn't. My goodness, that is large. Oh, the things some people get up to. Oh, well, you can't blame yourself, dear. I'd say crack open a bottle tonight and let tomorrow deal with it. But the gossip always turned back to one particular subject. No, I don't think that she did murder Thea. I don't even know how she would have blown her head up like that, do you? Uh, no, no, Colette disappearing doesn't have anything to do with Thea's death. Uh, maybe her head just exploded by itself. Did you ever think of that? Oh, where is that girl? For a moment, Ninette thought that she saw her former lodger standing on the market corner but it was just a reflection of the light off a travelling mirror salesman's wares. Mirrors, get your mirrors. Perfect for fixing your makeup or gazing into while reflecting on times past. Mirrors, guaranteed non-haunted. If you find a ghost in it, we'll give you half your money back. Mm, Colette loved gazing into the mirror and reflecting on her past. At this point, I would like to take you, dear listener, on a brief detour further into the past to explain how Ninette and Colette became such close compatriots. Ten years ago, Ninette had found a young Colette shivering underneath the awning of a market booth in the middle of a long and unusually cold spring storm. Taking pity on the girl, Ninette had brought her back to her house to warm up over a cup of tea. Thanks for letting me dry off. I'll head out again as soon as the rain stops. Well, I couldn't just leave you shivering there in the market drenched to the bone, now could I? Here, warm yourself up. Your diorama is very... 
It's nice. Is Charlemagne anatomically correct? If my research is correct, yes. Split right down the middle. Cool? I don't have much time to work on it, mind you. Taking care of this house takes up most of my time now that my Stefan's gone. I'm sorry. Oh, don't be. I'm not. He was a bastard. I hope he's in one of the spiky parts of hell. <laughs> I feel like that about my father sometimes. When did he pass, love? Soon, I hope. <laughs> Could I help you with some of the chores before I go? To thank you for the tea? Yes, dear. I would appreciate that. We may pause and go back again at other points in this chapter, but for now we can return to the spring of 1911, where Ninette had been looking at the mirrors for a very long time. Ma'am? Ma'am? I'll have to charge you for gazing soon, ma'am. Only the first minute is free. After that, it's three brook tile. Oh, my apologies. I'll be leaving now. Mirrors! Get your mirrors here! Still useful, despite being looked at by an old woman. Ninette continued her rounds in the market, unaware that a scant few miles away, Ariadne and Leonid were thundering through the Seltzamwald in a pitch-black carriage drawn by a terrifying monstrosity clutched together from two separate horses. It was called the double horse, and, so Ariadne's reasoning went, when the bottom half got tired, you could just flip it over and have the ostensibly fresh half take over. Ariadne's next idea, according to entries in her personal grimoire, was to add more horses. Ariadne and Leonid were about three horse flips into their journey, and fatigue was beginning to take hold. The suspension is murder on my thighs. You should really look into getting a car. And why do we have to go to Champignon anyway? You've already got the unicorn for the Armbrillion. Do we really need Colette? Remember this for when you're king, Leonid. It's good to have a backup plan, but it's better to have two successful plans. Ugh, fine. When I'm king, I'll have this whole town burnt down. Of course you will, my darling. But first, we need that information. Knowledge is power. I thought power was power. Lots of things are power. Well, this is as good a place as any to stop. Mother and son are lit from the carriage and headed towards the town of Champignon. While they were away, the double horse was devoured by a carnivorous tree, which we can all agree was for the best. Ninette, meanwhile, had arrived back to her home, a rather striking example of beautifully preserved 17th century Pyrenean stonework. She opened her Rococo wrought iron gate to her front garden, one of the few surviving remnants of the work of the now famous, then little-known, genius blacksmith Farquad Presturi, who lived up the street and had a well-documented fetish for old women. As she did so, a patch of gooseberry bushes caught her eye. It's odd, the stamps that people leave on the world around them. Anything might be the core of a memory, whether a locket or a mirror or an old patch of gooseberry bushes. Which brings us back to 1901, and another memory of the early days of Colette's life in Champignon.
It's so kind of you to stick around and help with the garden. It's the least I can do for the meal. And the clothes. And not telling the nuns from St. Rita's when they came through town asking about a runaway. I would have done all that anyway. Nuns, eh? Bunch of stuck-up, black-robed shit-eels is what they are. Do you know, when my Stefan finally died, the nuns had the nerve to tell me that I was a sinner not to pay for a church funeral. Ha! No, sacking a hole was more than he deserved. Oh, listen, I'm nattering on here. Oh, um, stick this bush in that hole, as the nun said to the carpenter. Give it here. Well, that should do it. Unless you have anything else you need done? Colette, dear, you've cleared out the fireplace. You've weeded the garden. You've replaced all the coat buttons I've been meaning to replace but kept forgetting to. Sorry, I'll just get my things, I guess. Not so fast. Will you look at that? You've put in the gooseberries backwards. They'll need rotating in about whoa, month's time. I'm not entirely sure that's what crop rotation means. Oh! Oh, right, yes! <laughs> I'm sorry. I can fix that, then? If you must. I suppose I could help you look around and find something to help pay rent with until then. Just for a little while, of course. You know, I hear the local tailors just had an assistant drop dead from Beldam's pox. She might be looking for a replacement. Colette's departure from town was inopportune, not just for sentimental reasons, but because Ninette's other tenant had moved away at the same time, leaving her with another room to let and no source of reliable income. Standing in her garden, she dug into her basket and pulled out a purchase she'd made earlier that day. She planted the Room to Let sign in front of the gooseberries and walked into her house. Meanwhile, Ariadne and Leonid headed through the main street of town. They passed the old tailor's shop where Colette once had apprenticed. It had now passed hands to an enterprising brewer, but because red paint was too expensive, the illustration for The Exploded Head was done mainly in whitewash, leading people to refer to it as the crushed garlic. Oh. Finally, civilization. Let's stop for a drink, Mother. It's not good for a future king to be seen too often mingling in such a common place. Besides, the inebriated are too resistant to torture. I'd have to rip the alcohol out of their systems, and then it's just a dreadful mess. You could try not torturing them? People hate telling you things when they're being tortured. Nonsense. I always get them to talk. Yes, but it takes forever, and there's so much screaming and fluids. People love to talk to me when they're drunk. Hmm. Well, I'll think about it. So we can go in? Yes, Leo, we can go in. But no drinking. It's only barely noon. Mother. All right. One beer. If you're good. What ho, what ho! How are you all finding yourselves on this fine morn, gentlemen? What? Fine day to take a punt out in the old canals, eh? I shovel dirt. Ew. Actually, I'm better than you, and this is a waste of my time. Barkeep! What do you have? A pint of Laubenheimer, please. We don't have that. 
Oh my god, what is this place? Leo, I said if you're good. Say, you look like a woman in need of a mirror. What was that, you horrible little man? Mother, remember, diplomacy. You promised! Fine. Well, I suppose I might need a mirror. I was going to buy one as a present for my friend, Colette Geis. But it seems she's moved out of town suddenly. You don't know her, do you? The new publican, one Rudolf Dupont, had been pouring Leonid a surreptitious pint of Flussfurs, mindful of how much rich layabouts like to recommend drinking holes to one another. His ears perked up at Colette's name as he sensed an opportunity for some juicy gossip. The girl who did the murder? Yes, that'll be her. I heard she went back to her father's. Really? Now, I can't quite remember where he was from, do you know? It was in Grensrau. No, no, that's not it. Uh, Ville Cruz, maybe. Wait, I remember now. He lives in... The mirror salesman, one Florin Sneed, sensing a sale to a regal and terrifying woman slipping through his fingers after a long and fruitless week of failing to sell reflective glass to farmers, made a last desperate attempt to close. Can't say that I know her, but I do know the value of a good mirror. Get one for yourself. Why, you'll never believe how good you look. Silence. <laughs> Sorry about that. Now, barkeep, you were saying about Colette's father? Speak up before I decide to erase the mouth from your face as well. Unfortunately, the bartender, seeing a man's mouth suddenly and painfully sealed shut, had already fainted. Finish your pint, Leo. I can't go anywhere with you. Oh, it was just a simple face removal spell. It'll wear off in a week or so. He'll be fine. It's barely torture. You don't seem to understand what I'm trying to say. Since I will be king and all, I want to be able to get people to do what I say without you torturing them into it. Or turning them inside out or erasing their mouths, or turning their hands into feet and their feet into hands, or mixing up all the holes on their face! Leo, you can't blame a mother for wanting to help her sweet baby boy. I'm 27, mother, and you never listen to me! Yes, I do. I listen to every word you say. Then prove it! The next person we talk to, no torture, or weird transformations, or taking their heart out of their chest and making them eat it. Unless they talk back. No, no, no matter what. Please, Mother, this is important to me. Oh, fine. For my sweet little boy. Thank you, Mother. Now, is this the place? Yes, dear. I remember it from my last visit. Since we're not torturing anyone, give the extremely phallic doorknocker a rap, would you? Hello there, can I help you? Yes, hello there. We heard that there was a room available to let. Oh, yes, come in, come in. Can I get you some tea, dears? Yes, I'll have a 1910 Albe and some pâté de foie gras. <laughs> I do like a young man that can drink in the morning. I'll see if I've got a bottle of bubbly in the cellar. Come, come. Ninette ushered Ariadne and Leonid in and went down to the cellar for a poke around. As the flesh crafter and her bastard entered Ninette's house, they were greeted by the filthiest dioramas either of them had ever seen. 
For listeners of Delicate Constitution, I won't say what Socrates was doing to Aristotle, but it was certainly not platonic. Hmm. The old bat really knows her anatomy. I was right. There's some pear wine that's still got a bit of fizz. Take a seat wherever you like. I'm afraid the table's taken until the paint dries, but you can do just as well with your lap. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, strapping young man like yourself. What does that hand gesture mean? Is that a spell? Ah, bless your heart. You know, I've never had the patience for all that. I only know just enough nature magic to light the stove. Really? Oh, but where are my manners? Here you are, sitting in my kitchen, admiring my dioramas, and I've not even asked your names. I'm Ariadne, and this is my son, Leonid. A beautiful boy you've got there. You must be proud. She is. I'm Ninette, and the pleasure is all mine. Now, let's get this cork off and get to know each other. It's lovely to have company around. Colette, the girl who had the attic room, used to lend me a hand, but now she's gone. I don't care what the police say. She's never done a thing wrong. Oh, but children are always up to something, aren't they? Why, this one used to love jam. Any jam we had, he'd end up with it smeared all over his face. No matter where I hid it, he'd get his sticky little fingers all over it. Oh, but then the wasps would come. Mother! Well... Colette, one day, she, well, she got it into her head that she was going to clear out the weasels from the garden. I tell her, you'll never get them out of their burrows, love. But she's determined after they ate all the carrots she planted. So she goes down to the blacksmith and gets a long metal tube and she sticks it in the holes and starts pouring old vinegar down there. The weasels don't mind, but come summer we had to keep all the windows shut or be walking around smelling like salads. That girl, <laughs> she never did anything the easy way. <laughs> I believe it. Oh, by the by, your work on the musculature in this diorama is exquisite. Where did you study? Oh, I like to dabble. That's all from my books. Supplemented with, let's say, a healthy amount of observation and uh, practical experience. The human body is a beautiful thing. It really is. Not that there's not room for improvement. Oh, this wine is... Well, it's not as awful as I was expecting. As the vintner said to the priest. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you. What what did the vintner say? Drink your wine, Leo. So, this Colette girl. I heard that after she killed her employer, she went back to her father's house. Do you know anything about that? Oh, oh, no chance at all. She'd never go back to Crystal City in a hundred years. If I know her, and I do, she'd take her chances in the Seltzamwald before going home to that bastard. Colette had indeed had a strained relationship with her father, if by strained one means actively hostile on both sides. Of her parents, Milena had taken a more active role in raising Colette, leaving Axel at a loss for what to do after his wife passed away from consumption. After two years of constant fighting between father and child, Axel's solution was to enrol her at St. Rita's Convent School in the south of the country. St. Rita's was, of course, Valor's preeminent educational institution for unruly and disturbed young women. Colette had been sent away to the school about two years before she escaped and came into Nanette's care. 
Ah, I expect you're excited to take a look at that room. <laughs> Ninette rose from her chair with some difficulty and beckoned for Ariadne and Leonid to follow. The three of them headed up the creaking old stairs where Ariadne opened the first door she found. Oh, not in there, dear. Oh, that's the stairs up to the attic. Oh, that was Colette's room. All of her things are still up there. Oh, my apologies. Ariadne made a gesture to Leonid to get him to distract Ninette for a moment. And how flammable would you say this room is? Hardly at all, sir. We've got a bit of an issue with rising damp, so if anything it could stand to be more flammable. Pity. While Nanette's attention was elsewhere, in this case worrying about the look in Leonid's eyes as he asked about kindling allowances, Ariadne secreted herself to the attic. Ariadne picked up a tiny cameo frame from the bedside table, studying the image of Colette and Mylena. It had taken them a few tries to get it without making each other laugh themselves into blurriness. A hint of a smile still played over both of their faces. You have your mother's eyes, Colette. That will take a little extra work, but... She put the picture back on the end table by the bed, where Colette had said goodnight and good morning to it every day for ten years, and snuck back downstairs to reconvene with her son and her hostess. Now, if you were to rate the thermic capacity of your oven... Leo, that's enough. We've seen all we need to. Oh, then you'll be taking the room? Just for the night. We need to be on our way tomorrow. After all, we still have so much to do. I'm glad to hear it. Well, will you join me for a piss-up? It's so nice to have company again. Of course. And you'll have to tell me all about that charming Colette girl. She sounds endlessly entertaining. I'll swap you for a few stories about your boy. Oh, I do like you. Now, when Leo was 23... Ariadne linked her arm through Nanette's, and the two women headed back down to the parlour. Leonid lingered for a moment, alone for the first time in several days. Maybe letting her turn that woman inside out would have been less embarrassing. Clothes completely burnt off in the center of town. No, it definitely would have. Mother! Leonid dashed down the stairs in an ultimately doomed attempt to stop his mother from describing the rest of the details of his first kiss. Ariadne and Nanette continued to get along famously for the rest of the day, at no point during which was Nanette tortured or warped. In fact, when Ariadne left the next morning to head to her final destination, the two women made a promise to each other that they would definitely catch up again and perhaps play some bridge next time. In Ariadne's personal effects, which can be seen at the Museum of the Feverite Republic, there is a surviving postcard from Ninette with a tremendously detailed etching of a naked Alexander the Great, bearing the legend, more like Alexander the slightly above average, This episode of The Kingmaker Histories was written by Max Kreisky and audio engineered by Meg Malloy Tutin, with executive production by Henry Galley. Our music comes courtesy of Vivek Arbashek. This episode featured, in order of appearance, David Alt as the historian, Addison Peacock as Ariadne, Roscoe Brahman as Dr. Giroux, Jazane Schacht as Leonid, Erica Sanderson as Nanette, Blythe Renee as Colette with additional voices by Max Kreisky, Gus Zagarella, and Henry Galley. If you're interested in supporting the show, 
please follow Kingmaker Pod on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram, or search for Kingmaker Histories on Facebook and Patreon. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again in two weeks. In the year 1889, there was nowhere in the world more exciting than London, England. Three cheers for Inspector Lestrade and the bad boys of Baker Street themselves, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John Watson! Solved by Sherlock Bloody Holmes of 221B Baker Street. Well, with any luck, we'll get a new brutal murder any day now. God, I wish. It's truly shocking you haven't solved anything in five years. The boys are both out of town for some case about a dog in Dartmoor this weekend. Sincerely, Martha Hudson. London's number two detective team just became number one. Fox and Stallion. Find us on Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr at 224bbaker or on our website 224bbaker.com. It's like they say, big breaks are 90% luck. What's the other 10%? Luck.